I'm going to be, begin by opening up in prayer. We'll check the sound a little bit through that, and then we'll get started. Let us bow our heads in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this morning that we can gather together and uh, learn more about you through your word. We thank you so much for your faithfulness. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself, and we're forever grateful. Heavenly Father, as we dig into the great book of Revelation, we ask, Heavenly Father, that in this journey through that book, you would enable us to be those people who are convinced of your promises and therefore who forsake the sins that so easily entangle us and look up above for our redemption and not live for the things of this earth. And we ask that you would help us to think deeply, to use our minds as tools that give you great honor and worship. And we ask that you would accomplish this for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. This is the start of the book of Revelation, and I'm very excited to be teaching this book with you. It will go on for quite some time. I don't know how long. But this introduction that I'm going to be getting into this morning is really, I view it as I want to get through it in three parts. And I want to explain why we're going to be doing such a robust introduction to the book of Revelation. And I want to do so by telling you a little story. In my life, I became a believer when I was 19 years old. And God had used an old German Luftwaffe pilot who came out to Crystal Airport. I was working as what they called a line boy. I was one of those guys who gassed airplanes. And at the time, I had my commercial pilot's license. So I was working as a line boy, gassing airplanes and driving a tractor around to pay for my flying lessons. And one day, there was an old German Luftwaffe pilot who came out. He flew the Stucke uh, Ju-87, the dive bomber, on the Russian Eastern Front, and he came out to give me the gospel. And I believed in the gospel. I trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ that day, and I became a believer. And from that point forward, one of the most important books to me was the book of Revelation. And the reason why is two weeks prior to this Luftwaffe pilot preaching the gospel to me, I witnessed an airplane crash. I remember I gassed airplanes for a living. Well, this one particular family took a Cessna 310, that's a twin-engine aircraft, and they were going to go out to South Dakota to buy a puppy. Well, I love Cessna 310s. I love this family, and I love the fact that they're going to go buy a puppy. It was all American to me. And so I chatted with them, and I gassed the airplane up. And to my horror, about five minutes after they had departed, they crashed on takeoff, and all three of them died. And God had my attention, and that's why I was really open to the gospel. But I remember seeing their bodies and how they were bent back in their seats. And I don't mean to be graphic, but I want you to think about what an impact that would have had on a 19-year-old who, remember when you're 19, you think you've got the world by the tail and you're invincible. Well, when I became a believer, I realized that all of us have one foot in the afterlife and one on a banana peel. And I wanted to know for sure what the hope and the promises are for the believer. And so the book of Revelation became very precious to me. Now let me fast forward. 1998, there's a book written by my favorite theologian at the time, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was the one who got me into sound doctrine, introduced apologetics in the scriptures to me. But in 1998, he wrote a book that really challenged my faith, and it was a book called The Last Days According to Jesus. How many in here have read that book? Norm, you've read that book. Well, Norm will attest to this. It's a book that's really based on what's called partial preterism. Now, what is preterism? Preterism comes from a Latin term, praetor, which means past. And what preterism teaches, whether it's full or partial, is that the majority of the things in the book of Revelation actually occurred in the destruction of 70 AD, the temple, the Jewish temple in 70 AD. Well, the reason I mention that is that really devastated my understanding of the hope that we have as Christians. And it destroyed the confidence that I had for a period of time in the scriptures. Now, as I say that, I don't mean to heap guilt upon R.C. Sproul. I love the man. I pray for him. I still contribute to him. And I know he'll be ahead of me, I'm sure, in the kingdom. But I want to say this. He's dead wrong on his understanding of the book of Revelation. And so this introduction is designed to give you confidence that we can have a correct interpretation the last thing we need to be as Christians who are studying this book as a bunch of postmoderns who toss up our hands in the air and say, well, who can really know how to interpret it anyway? 
After all, there's all these different interpretations. And so the goal of this introduction is to give you confidence to say, yes, I know that the futurist approach to understanding the book of Revelation is the correct one. All right? In fact, um, you'll notice the handouts you got. The one handout you have, I want you to look at it right now with me, if you will. This is a handout. I want to thank Christy Weam for helping me put this together. This is a handout. Um, notice it has to do with the different schools of interpretation. We'll be coming back to this handout quite often in the future in our study, so this is one you want to hang on to. But I just want to turn your attention to that handout because I want you to see how many different schools of interpretation there really are. And these are kind of the broad ones here. Uh, start at the top. Notice the historist school. The historist school ends up spiritualizing the text of Revelation. Why? Because they want to fit all of the data within the book of Revelation into that which occurred in the church from the patristic period all the way through the Reformation to the modern day. And so the only way that they can get that viewpoint across is to allegorize the text. Okay? Now, come down at the very bottom to the idealist school. The idealist school is also called the spiritual approach. And really, they have much the same approach as the historists do. They end up allegorizing the text. The only difference between the idealist school and the historist school is the idealists see what's called recapitulation. Now, what in the world is recapitulation? Well, in the book of Revelation, you're going to see seven seals, seven trumpets, and then you're going to have seven bowls of judgment. What the idealist sees is that there are the same judgments over and over. And so they believe the book of Revelation is merely this idealistic battle between the forces of good, God and his people, versus Satan and his minions. So the reason I'm pointing that out is I think the historist approach at the top of your your sheet of paper and the idealist approach are really bad hermeneutics. Okay, why? Because they have to take text that we can take according to the normal historical grammatical understanding of interpretation and they spiritualize them, they allegorize them. Okay, so what I'm going to do is we go through our book of Revelation periodically I'll be showing you some of the historist and idealist interpretations to show you, and I don't mean to be unkind, but how laughable they are, just to give you confidence to say, you know what, you're on the right track. But saying that, there's another school of thought, and that's where R.C. Sproul came in in my introduction. Notice the partial preterist school below the futurist. The partial preterist is convinced that everything from chapter 4 of Revelation to chapter 11 already transpired in the destruction of 70 A.D. So what's interesting, though, about the partial preterist view is at least they're trying to take the text seriously, but they're seriously in error. And so my introduction is really designed to show you that the partial preterist scheme isn't possible. Now, why is that important? Because once we rule those three out, we're left with only the futurist interpretation. Notice there are two different camps of futurists. There's the historical premillennialists, That's a camp that sees the book of Revelation is primarily referring to the future, as we would, but these are typically those who are post-tribulation believers. They believe that Jesus comes back to rapture the church at the end of the tribulation period. All right? Now, the futurist dispensational premillennialist, I never line myself up with dispensationalists, but these are typically those who hold to a premillennial and also a pre-trib view. Now, by the way, I'm not just... Disparaging dispensationalists. I'm just saying I don't buy into every aspect of their theology. There's some things I do and some things I don't. Okay? So here's the big picture. I want you to see that the futurist approach in seeing that the book of Revelation is about this great eschatological hope is the best interpretive school we can belong to. And in fact, it corresponds to reality. And I'm going to be proving that to you. So that's my long winded introduction to understanding the book of Revelation. Now, when anytime you do an introduction, You should really talk about the author and the occasion of the writing, but I left that out for brevity. Let me assert this boldly. The author of the book of Revelation is John the Apostle. And if anyone says, you know what, I've heard other people say this or that, see me, I've got plenty of data to prove that to you. But it was John the Apostle who wrote it from Patmos as he was exiled. And the occasion is that John is going to be writing about this glorious kingdom that Jesus is bringing. 
The entire book of Revelation is about this grand kingdom that Jesus Christ will come and bring. And this kingdom is a great and grand hope for believers in Jesus Christ. But to those who have rebelled against him, it's, it's going to be terror. It's going to be judgment. And it's going to be wrath. Okay? That's what the book of Revelation is all about. So there's three things that I think are critical in understanding the proper interpretation of the book. Number one, the dating. Again, the partial preterist view that I want to show isn't possible dates the book of Revelation to being written prior to 70 AD. And what I'm going to show you, because Jerusalem fell, you might want to write this down, Jerusalem fell to the Romans in the fall of 70 AD. The preterist camp must, and I say must, have the book of Revelation written during the reign of Nero prior to, to 67 AD in the spring because and here's why they even believe that revelation chapter 11 remember you have three and a half years there's a prophecy of a three and a half year window they believe that that applies to the destruction of jerusalem well when is jerusalem destroyed in the autumn of 70 AD therefore for the book of revelation to be a prophecy to them it must be dated by the spring of 67 AD. That means if you and I can prove that the book of Revelation is dated after the spring of 67 AD, preterism's over. And by the way, I just mentioned partial preterism. Partial preterism is not heretical. Now let me explain the difference between partial and full. Full preterism is the belief that the entire book of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD and there's no longer even a second coming. All of it happened in 70 AD. That's heretical. R.C. Sproul and many uh, Reformed theologians and post-millennialists, amillennialists, they hold to partial preterism, which maintains that all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 11 of Revelation, that's fulfilled in 70 AD. And then when you get from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 20, verse 6, that is fulfilled, they believe, now in the church age. But they believe that when you get to chapter 20, verse 7, this is where Jesus calls judgment upon the enemies at Gog and Magog, and you have the eternal states that come after that. They still believe that that's in the future. But what I'm going to show you is they're being inconsistent, and the dating of the book of Revelation prohibits their view. And that means then you and I are stuck with the futurist view, and I think we can be confident with that. Okay, now the second thing I want to talk about is Old Testament background. Oh, yeah, let me stop. Good. Where is Hank Hanegraaff falling at? Good question. Um, he would be a partial preterist too. Yeah. So he's not. He's not an um, error then, or not totally an error. No, I would call him a brother. Um, I don't know. I, I my understanding of Hank Hanegraaff is that he would be a partial preterist, much like R.C. Sproul, from oh. everything that I've read of him. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yep. oh. So. Yeah. <laughs> Does that help? I. Um, I, I know he read, wrote a book not that long ago, and um, I don't recall what it was uh, entitled, but... The Apocalypse Code. The Apocalypse Code. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. But we'll be dealing with those partial preterist arguments, and we'll be showing that they're, they're not that good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We got to... Oops. Hold on. We're going to get you on mic here. So is John's role in this then primarily just secretarial? I mean, it's, it's the revelation that God gave unto his son, Jesus Christ. Is that accurate? Yeah, you know, I, what I would claim is that John, the apostle, is functioning as any other apostle. He's being given this revelation by Jesus Christ to dispense to the church. And so just as you and I think about Jesus, we say he's on the one hand truly man, but on the other hand, he's truly God. The same thing can be said of any revelation given to us in our scripture. Certainly it is written of John, the apostle. It's of man, but ultimately it's inspired by God. So it's of God. So it's truly of man, truly of God. And that's why when you and I are interpreting the book, we want to be very careful that we understand the author's intention because the ultimate author behind the text is God. And so what I'm going to show you is there's clues within the text itself that show us the proper interpretation. We don't have to remain clueless about that. Okay? And in fact, thank you for that. It's a good segue into our next point, the Old Testament background. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
builds heavily off of Old Testament background. Out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, listen to this, 278 of them contain allusions to the Old Testament. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. Now, the primary book that we're going to be looking at in our introduction, now there's many others we need to, but is the book of Daniel. Is I'm going to show you the book of Revelation builds off of Daniel 1.1. I'm sorry, Revelation 1.1 builds off of Daniel 2.28. Okay, so the book of Daniel is absolutely essential to understand, especially the 70 weeks prophecy for the backdrop to the book of Revelation. So Old Testament background is going to be essential. And then the third thing, these go together, interpretation and structure. How many times I've read, I can't tell you how many times, different people's approach to how the book of Revelation is structured. They'll say, well, there's a chiastic structure, there's ten equal parts. John actually gives us the structure. And I'll show you that. And alongside that, I'm going to talk about proper interpretive technique. When John talks about, for instance, lampstands, you don't have to guess what the lampstands are. Do you know why? He tells you. <laughs> Do you remember Bob? Bob was talking one day. He says, you know, um, it was Ken Copeland, I think, came up with a different interpretation of a parable than Jesus did. Do you remember that? And Bob always said, anytime somebody differs with Jesus' interpretation, you may want to go with Jesus. Let's go with John, who's inspired. He gives us the data. And I'll show you some interpretive rules that we'll be using that are very consistent that can be applied all the way through. So with those three rules then, let me explain again why this is so important. Why does it matter that we get Revelation right? Listen to what John says here, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now the term near there is an adverb, engu is how you would say it in Greek. And it has to do with this at-handedness or this imminence for this coming kingdom. And what's interesting is I would certainly claim that you and I as believers are blessed by any book that we read and understand and heed, whether it be Genesis all the way to the book of Jude. But in particular, I think the reason why Revelation is considered a blessing by John is because it's about the promises of God. If you and I are going to persevere, and this is one thing that Bob and I keep hammering on with the means of grace, if you and I are going to persevere and not live for this world and its sin, it's because we believe the best is yet to come. That's what this book does. It says we win, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. He's coming back. In this glorious kingdom that you and I have been dreaming about, talking about, that's what this book is all about. And so it's really designed in order to enable us to persevere even through difficult days and be those who are living, as Paul says, focus on things above in Colossians 3, not things that are on the earth. So with that, any other questions, comments, concerns, show game ideas? Yes. Oops, we got to get a yeah, microphone. So anything, so anything that you say can and will be held against you. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Did you explain the two different futuristic views? Yeah, let me do it again, Are you going to do that? I I don't know if I missed that part. No, no, that's fine. Um, Let me just say it again. Um, In fact, let me just back up. On the screen here, I have two different futurist camps. What I'm trying to do in our introduction is put you in the futurist camp. I don't particularly care which one now, but here's the distinction. The historical premillennialism view, they're typically people who are post-tribulation and what that means is that they believe that the tribulation comes um, antichrist sets himself up in the temple at the halfway point and at the seven-year period when things are going so bad against the saints jerusalem is surrounded it's sacked as you read in zechariah 14 all of a sudden in revelation 19 jesus comes from the clouds and his saints are with him and they believe that is synonymous with the resurrection and the rapture that's alluded to in first thessalonians 4 Okay, so that would be the historical premillennial camp. They're post-trib, whereas the future dispensational premillennial uh, camp, one thing we share in common is we're all premillennial. We see the book of Revelation referring to the future, but that would be typically more of the pre-trib camp. And that's the camp that I'm in. And one of the reasons I'm in that camp is because the only way you can have the coming of the Lord unknowable and the day of the Lord unknowable is if they kick off coterminously. 
If one happened before the other, you'd be tipped off. Okay, and I'll be showing routine data through as we study those different passages. But anyway, though, but I want to just put you in, one of, in the futurist camp because that's the proper interpretation. Okay, so is that, does that help answer your question? Okay, excellent. Anybody else before I move off of um, this slide here? Yeah, Brian. This is the only church where you can ask this question and think you're the idiot in the room. But could you define dispensation, please? Yeah, um, technical, the, there's a lot of different forms of it now, and it's been modified various times. But the dispensational belief is primarily that God has operated through history through seven different dispensations. He acted with Adam one way um, before the fall, then after the fall a different way. And then he entered into a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And so they basically see that God works through different dispensations. Okay? The, the strength of the dispensational program, as it were, is this, in my opinion. They allow for the distinction between the church and Israel in one important way. That is, the promises that were given to Israel, I believe, will literally happen. Okay? The one area where I would disagree with them is where they make, and now not all of them do this, but some dispensationalists make a radical distinction on how you were saved in the old covenant and how you were saved now. My claim would be much more like what are called covenant theologians in that salvation. Remember Jesus says in John 8, 58, before, um, I'm sorry, 8:56, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it from afar and was glad. One of the implications, I think, of that is that Abraham had the same faith that you and I do. He was saved as he looked forward to the cross, the Messiah, and the future promises. You and I look back to the cross and the promises, but we're saved by faith in the Messiah and the promises of God. So um, the point is the strength of the dispensational camp, I think, is that they preserve Israel. In other words, the church doesn't replace Israel. So the correct way of thinking, I think, about salvation is when you believed in Jesus Christ, you were obviously placed in the church, but when the kingdom comes, remember in Romans 11, Paul says that we have been grafted in. So we become partakers of the kingdom of Israel. The covenant theologians, which are typically more reformed, they would say, no, 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 all that goofy stuff about the kingdom coming to Israel, that's nonsense. The kingdom is fulfilled now in the church. Okay? I think we have to jettison that view. Why? Because they have to play fast and loose with the text. They don't um, think about even Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 that talks about the temple. They have to spiritualize the dimensions of the temple to make it be the church. Well, how do you how do you come up with a valid hermeneutic by spiritualizing the height of a doorway? Okay, if it's 10 cubits, what do you say? Well, the 10 cubits represents the 10 different nations. I mean, you can make it mean anything. What if it means that the height of the doorway in a future temple is going to be 10 cubits? (laughs) Imagine that. So the point is, we as dispensationalists, uh, if, if we hold to the view that, look, there is still a plan for Israel, we can read the text much more literally. It okay. turns out that Rick Warren is the doorknob. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no comment there, Rich. Okay, yes. Um, any, anyone else? Yes. No, 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 that's fine. We got the mic back there. Thomas. In every church... Um, I've attended it uh, growing up or whatever. Yeah. I would say there's one thing consistent, and that's that whenever studying Revelation or any of the <clears throat> eschatological, uh, can't even say it, but books regarding eschatology from the Old Testament, that uh, every teacher or pastor is, is very careful to stay completely away from the book of Jude and never mention the book of uh, Yasher. It's mentioned, uh, you know, for instance, when Joshua... Uh, as the uh, some stand still. Sure. And I'm just wondering if you can comment about how, uh, um, I mean, it seems odd to me that, I understand the Council of Nicaea determined that maybe that book should be apocryphal. Yet, we seem to, as, as Christians, be more than willing to accept the word of Josephus when it comes to historical matters, who was an apostate um, and you know, yeah. a traitor, essentially. Something God's word says is upright with regard to scripture. And to my understanding, even though I haven't really been through it, it 
has a lot of fill in the blank things. So I'm just wondering if you could comment about maybe some extracurricular work on or yeah, on some of the apocryphal books and some of the pseudepigraphical books. Yeah, not as scripture, but as yeah. it's just. Uh, well, first of all, let me just say this. Um, one of the differences. Let's distinguish between Josephus and the scriptures. Uh, Josephus, we could certainly look at as Christians and say, yes, there's historical truth in there. But do we know that Josephus doesn't err at some point? We don't. In other words, it's not, what we have to do is examine Josephus in light of the facts. We have to examine what he said. He seems to be trustworthy in a lot of ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean that anything Josephus says is inerrant. When it comes to the scriptures, the things that are inspired by God, we can be confident that they really are without error. Okay? Now, one correction I just want to make is when it comes to the Council of Nicaea, we don't really look at the church determining the canon. What we see throughout time, and I want you to make this distinction in your mind, is that the church doesn't determine the canon. The church recognizes the canon. Okay? And that really distinguishes us between Protestants from Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is of the view that the church determines the canon and therefore, you have to uphold their magisterium, okay? If you say that their magisterium can err, they will quickly say, well, wait a minute, they determine the canon, so do you have the wrong canon? That's the try of it. But what we have to understand is the church, dear ones, didn't determine the canon, it recognized it. And so some of that criteria that was used is, was it apostolic or written by a prophet or somebody under apostolic or prophetic authority? Um, it also had to be accepted readily, by the saints as something viewed as inspired by the Holy Spirit, okay? And it was also useful for the saints in edification of the body, and it didn't contradict known scripture. And so that was criteria. Now, Josephus certainly would. Uh, the book of Asher that you're referring to, yeah, um, these, these are things that we can simply say, look, it may be profitable any of these books, if you can get access to them to read and to understand certain history, but they're certainly not under prophetic authority. In fact, what's interesting is when it comes to the apocryphal books in particular, it was recognized that there was not a prophet in Israel for the 400 years that they were written. Remember, the apocryphal books were written when? During the intertestamental period, okay? So, but, but when it gets to the book of Asher, we don't exactly know when that was written. That's the point that I would make. So... We accept it as being uh, a book that, I mean, by its very name, it means, you know, upright, good standing, doesn't it? Right, but if I, if I titled a book, upright and, you know, good and upright standing, this is from God, you know, would you say, well, hey, that's apostolic? No, you would laugh me out of the room, rightly so. Right. So that's the point. Um, we, we have to move on, but let me just say this. When Sorry. it comes to the apocryphal books, what we're dealing with is a debate between Catholicism and Protestants, and somewhat on the Eastern Orthodox, but realize the debate isn't over the New Testament, it's over the Old Testament. So if you hold to the apocryphal books as the Catholic Church does, you have to believe, listen carefully, you have to believe the Jews had the wrong canon or didn't include enough books because the apocryphal books were written during the intertestamental period. Now, I want you to think about how that compares with what Paul says in Romans 3. Remember, Paul says, well, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Remember, through the first two chapters, he'd laid out that every Jew and Gentile is under sin and condemnation. Well, he says, well, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? He says, one in every way. They were given the very oracles of God. So if they had the very oracles of God, what Paul is saying is they had the word of God. And their word of God didn't include the apocryphal books. So you're either going to have to go with the apostle Paul or the Catholic Church, but you can't go with both. Okay. That's a really good... So write that down, Romans 3, to, for your Catholic friends who believe in the apocryphal books. Okay. Now, with that, um, let me move on then. And what we're going to do then is we're going to talk... Anybody other, else? I don't want to cut off anybody. Okay. We're going to get into the dating of the book of Revelation and why it matters. I'm going to have Bob jump in here in just a second. Remember, what we want to do is refute this idea of partial preterism. But let me explain where this idea really comes from. And I'll have Bob jump in on this. There's a movement that's not necessarily new, but it's newer to theology, meaning in the 20th into the 21st century, called Christian Reconstructionism. And notice there's also a term called theonomy. 
Christian Reconstructionist Bob wrote a wonderful article on it, and I'll have him talk here in just a second. But these are typically your partial preterists. This idea of theonomy, theos and namas, is put together. Theos is God, namas is law. They want to bring the law of God and subdue all of the earth. They believe they have what's called a dominion mandate. And so what these men do is they distort Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, where we see the mandate given to human beings to subdue the earth as far as the animal order. They take it so far as to believe that we have a dominion mandate to rule over men. So when they apply that to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, they believe it's... See, what we believe is Matthew's commission that Jesus gives us is to make disciples of all nations by proclaiming the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These reconstructionists take it further and say, we have to have dominion and rule over every aspect of this earth, even including government. Okay. Now, Bob, you wrote a wonderful article on uh, Christian reconstruction. Of his, is, and by the way, we can get it in the scholarly section of CIC. Yeah. Why don't you comment on okay, that? Okay, I, actually, I, uh, one of my theology teachers, Dr. Rake Straw, I was discussing with him, and he asked me if I'd write an article, which was also a paper for his class. Yeah. So I submitted it, and he thought it ought to be published. We ended up publishing it on CICministry.org under scholarly. And I went through the claims. So using primary source research, Gary DeMar, Gary North, and some of the other uh, Christian Reconstructionists, and I took each one of their proof texts and just looked at it in context to see whether there's a mandate for believers to force unbelievers to obey the Old Testament law and that we should take dominion over not just animals or non-human creation, but take dominion over nations, peoples, or whatever and force them to live a certain way in their unregenerate state. And then uh, it goes further into this post-millennialism that once we succeed in doing that, we're going to bring the millennium to earth without Christ. So now we're going to have the kingdom of God on the earth without a king, with Christians ruling over non-Christians, forcing them to obey God's law in a certain way as they understand it, generally pulling it out of Moses. And so I just went through their proof text and they fail, fail, fail. It just isn't there. Okay, it's it's reading it into Scripture. So, anyhow, I wrote an article about that, and I'm willing to debate anybody. I have a Gary Demar was interested in debating one time, but it wasn't something I was inclined to do at the time. Yeah. And I wrote a letter to Gary North back in the '80s, questioning that. Before we had for email, I'm pretty old if I was around before email, right? <laughs> and he just mocked me. He said, I don't have time to swap mosquitoes coming through my window. Uh, write a whole bunch of books. I've read, He claimed he'd written 15, 20 books. Well, that's totally, entirely inappropriate. Whether the Scripture teaches yeah. Christian Reconstructionism or doesn't teach it, isn't determined by how many books somebody wrote. Yeah, that's right. Okay. You know, Bob, I want to pick up on something you've been teaching us through the book of Galatians. And uh, for those of you that haven't heard uh, Galatians, I think most of you in here have been through those studies. One of the interesting things that you've pointed out that Paul's teaching us is that if we go back to the law, we're actually going back to the stoichia. We're being put under the demonic realm. So interestingly enough, the Christian Reconstructionists, by turning people... Remember, they want to put the Mosaic law upon everybody. They're really putting people under the demonic realm, aren't they? Yeah, Galatians chapter 4, 3 and 4 in particular, published an article on that too about blessing and cursing. Uh, All of the things that are bad that Paul lays out in Galatians, being under the pedagogos, being under the stoichia, being under the slavery, the taskmasters, the tutors, it's all bad. Okay, it's something you wouldn't want. And once you come to Christ and have the new covenant and the liberty that we have in Christ to go back 
to law keeping is to go back under every kind of bondage and to go back under the curse. And that's exactly what they're asking. And so you have Christian Reconstructionists going around the world seeing how many people they can put under Satan and the curse. Hmm. That's how. Uh, that's I wanted to see, think about that. How and so they would uh, they would deny that. And oh. the other thing is, it doesn't. It, it gets every once in a while. It gets a little boost depending on what's going on politically. Yeah. When I was most uh, fully engaged in this with this in debating in the '80s, when I wrote those letters to Gary North, uh, there was a guy named Earl Polk who was a charismatic who since has been. Uh, anyhow, they they've had a, a bunch of. Really bad scandals. I don't think he's still on the scene of history. But because they were promoting Dominion theology, they hooked up with the Reconstructionists. And they had Reagan for the president who made things seem more hopeful. Mm. Okay, right now you'd have a hard time selling this idea. (laughs) (laughs) But oh, we got Reagan, we got the charismatic movement, we've got revival, we got. And so they were, they were. You know, working together. Sure, sure. But in the end, you never end up with a Christianized anything. That's right. And you're not, uh, we're not able to obey the law of God as regenerate, uh, spirit-filled Christians. How in the world are the unregenerate going to obey it? Exactly. Well, and so, according to Paul, uh, the ones that try to do it were just put themselves under a curse. That's right. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Um, now, let me just show some names that Bob had mentioned. One uh, that you didn't mention was David Chilton. I'm sure you remember him. Uh, yeah. Gary DeMar, Kenneth Gentry. Let me mention David Chilton for just a moment. David Chilton is a partial preterist. He believes, this is his interpretive scheme, he believes that John the Apostle isn't John the Apostle, but that he was a priest that worked in the temple. And so he sees everything through a liturgical milieu. He takes this very informal church in the first century that's meeting in homes and he forces it into this liturgical milieu where the whole book of Revelation is seen through this liturgical wrangling of a priest who's dealing with the destruction of the temple. Now, if that doesn't show you kind of the silly nature of this view, I don't know what does. Now, let me just, I'm going to build off of that. Let me just show you what they believe. Again, believers, they say, well, Christianize, there's many things wrapped into that as Bob was saying, they're going to Christianize the planet, bring in the kingdom of God, and then Jesus returns. And that's why they're referred to as post-millennial. They bring the kingdom through their efforts, through bringing the Mosaic law and man- putting this dominion mandate upon people. They're going to bring about the kingdom. Now, what's the problem with that if you read the book of Revelation? Well, Revelation paints a very pessimistic view, does it not? Yep. When you read the book of Revelation, do you say, oh, the saints are winning and they're just, you know, no. It gets really bad for the saints. That is the tribulation saints until what? Until Jesus comes back. So what they have to do is they have to reconcile. If they're going to be successful and bring the kingdom of God about and the Christians succeed, and the book of Revelation says that Christians don't succeed, and unless Christ came back, we'd be wiped out, then they have to do something different with the book of Revelation, don't they? And so what they're forced to do then is they say Revelation must be fulfilled in 70 A.D. It must be about the destruction of the temple. That's really the primary reference. Now, what that means then is that they must date, again, the book by the spring of 67 A.D. And so what I'm going to show you is that we can prove that Revelation was actually dated during the reign of Domitian. Okay, let's start. So what I'm going to show you is that the book of Revelation is certainly dated not only after 67, it's dated around 95 A.D. And that rules out the partial preterist scheme. Okay, let's deal. Now, when we're dealing with dating, we're really dealing with, dealing with two different types of dating sources. We can deal with external sources or internal sources. Internal sources are data that you would find from the text itself, and we have some in the book of Revelation. But external sources are typically sources from archaeology or scholars who are outside of the text, as it were, that help you date a book. And so I want to begin with external sources. In particular, the most important quotation is from a man named Irenaeus. How many have heard of Irenaeus? I know Bob obviously has in in Dana. Good. Many of you have read him uh, and maybe some of the things that he's written. He wrote a book called Against Heresies. There's actually multiple volumes. And if any of you have Logos, you can get this on your Logos. You can read it. And I did quite a bit of reading of him this week. 
And I want you to see the most important quote from him. He says this regarding the revelation that John has, the book of Revelation. He says this, For it was seen not long ago, but almost in our generation, near the end of Domitian's reign. Now, let me explain why Irenaeus' quote is so powerful. Irenaeus knew Polycarp. Polycarp, remember, was this martyr. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. And so do you see how Irenaeus's weightiness there would be accentuated by the fact that he knew Polycarp himself who knew John, okay? Now, let me explain what the debate in this text is about. There's a man named Kenneth Gentry. I showed you that on the last slide. He did his Ph.D. dissertation on the dating of Revelation in which he tried to claim, because he's a partial preterist, he tried to claim that this text of Irenaeus really doesn't prove what we claim it proves. Let me show you where. Notice where it says, it was seen. That comes from an aorist passive verb where it can either be rendered it or he or she. So what Kenneth Gentry, this partial preterist, would claim is that it shouldn't be rendered for it was seen, but rather for he, that is, John was seen not long ago, but almost in our generation near the end of Domitian's reign. And so what he's claiming is that it wasn't the book of Revelation that was written during the time of Domitian, but that John happened to be seen there. The problem with that assertion is it's absurd. Because if you read the surrounding context in Irenaeus' writing here, and it's volume 5, you see Irenaeus wrestling with, who is this Antichrist? And what he ends up saying is, no one can know, in fact, no one will know, until he's on the scene of history. And he says, in fact, if we were to know who the Antichrist was, don't you think John would have told us? After all, he saw the revelation, and that's where he says, it was seen not long ago, but almost in our generation. In other words, what he's saying is, look, if we were supposed to know, God would have told us in his revelation, but he didn't. All right. Yeah. The, are you going to cover some of the other church fathers that were closer to John? Poly, oh, had, well, yeah. Polycarp claimed to have known him. Exactly, yeah. Okay, and there's a story from Polycarp about John being in a public bathhouse and the heretic Serenthus yeah. comes in and John <laughs> ran out of there lest the judgment of God fall on everybody in there because Serenthus was... Now, how, whether you can believe all these things, it was pretty well established by some of the earliest church fathers yeah. that John had been contemporary with them on the scene of history. That's right. Amen. Okay, and it wasn't just Irenaeus. That's right. And so here, here's our response. I think that this quote by Irenaeus is devastating. I don't think there's any wiggle room. I think it's obvious from the context when you read the passage, it's not John that was being seen, it was the revelation. Because the issue that Irenaeus is wrestling with is, well, why don't we know who the Antichrist is? After all, God could have told us if he wanted to. So don't worry about knowing his, his identity. After all, he says, it was seen, that is the revelation, not long, long ago, but almost in our generation during Domitian's reign. Now, when did Domitian reign? He was a Roman emperor that reigned from 81 to 96 AD. Okay, well after 70 AD. Now, by the way, this date is also corroborated by Clement of Alexandria, uh, I believe 3rd, 4th century origin. Victorinus. Victorinus was, by the way, a uh, emperor of Gaul. He's uh, around 4th century. Eusebius, known as the father of church history, he corroborates this. Jerome was a really good scholar. If these men thought Irenaeus was an heir, why didn't they correct him? Okay, they didn't correct him. Why? Because he wasn't an heir. All right, so this is a very powerful piece of external evidence. Now, let me show you some others. I think this is powerful as well. Number one here, other evidence for a 95 AD Date. John left Israel for Asia Minor during the Jewish revolt of 66 to 70 A.D. This is from Merrill Tenney in his expositor's Bible commentary. And he gets this information from Eusebius. Here's the potency of this. Think about the Jewish revolt begins in 66 to 70 A.D. The claim then from Eusebius is that John the Apostle left sometime during that revolt. Well, let's just, for the sake of argument, say that John left Israel and he went to Asia Minor at the very beginning of the revolt. Okay, hypothetically, that would be 66 AD. What's the problem with that? Well, he would have to leave Israel, get all the way to Asia Minor, get established, get himself in trouble with Nero, get banished to Patmos, get the vision of Revelation, write it, and dispense it. 
all before what? The spring of 67. Now, if you believe that he can do that, I think it stretches credulity. And uh, if you believe that he could do that, I just, I, I just disagree. Okay, it's just very unlikely. What's more is it simply does not give enough time for John to get to Asia Minor, be established, get in trouble with Nero, and then be banished prior to Nero's death. Remember, the partial preterist is claiming that this book was written during Nero's reign, and he dies in 68 AD. Okay, so that's very difficult. But there's another piece of evidence I think is very devastating as well, and that's Laodicea. Laodicea is, remember the letter to the seven churches? Jesus addresses this lukewarm church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. Well, Laodicea was devastated by an earthquake in 60 to 61 AD, so there simply is not enough time for the Laodiceans to have rebuilt the city, have a church established, and then have the church turn apostate in five years. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Revelation 3.17, listen to Jesus' rebuke of Laodicea. He says to them, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Laodicea was basking in wealth. They were glorifying in their own riches, and they really felt like God was an afterthought. They didn't need him. They had it all within their own prosperity. They had it all. But Jesus says, no, you don't. My point in saying that is if there, and there was an earthquake in 61 AD, can you imagine them being reestablished by 67, becoming so wealthy that they end up boasting in their riches? They'd have to do that within six years. Now, the problem with that is there's a man named Colin Hammer who wrote a book called The Seven Churches. He claims through research that reconstruction of Laodicea lasted through the rest of Nero's reign and for some years thereafter. Okay, now when does Nero die? 68 AD. Okay, remember, if Revelation is written after the spring of 67, partial preterism is done. Okay, and more than likely, this church was still being rebuilt well after 68 AD. So the point is it more than likely takes time, and you can see why the 95 AD date is preferable. Why? Because that gives enough time for Laodicea to be rebuilt, they become prosperous, and they start forsaking the Lord. The 95 AD date makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Now here, let's talk about some internal timing indicators. To me, this is really devastating against the partial preterist view. The bookends of Revelation, this was actually pointed out to me by Mark Hitchcock. I got to meet him at Jan Markell's conference, and I love Mark. He does a wonderful job, and he wrote a paper that he used this argument, so I'm going to cite him. I think it's well said. Revelation 1.1 and Revelation 22.6 have the same phrase that are used, and take, which means soon. Okay, the book of Revelation is about this kingdom that's coming when? It's coming soon. Okay, but notice it's in Revelation 1.1, but it's also in Revelation 22.6. So the bookends of the book of Revelation are about this imminency, this idea that what's going to transpire is happening soon. In fact, I'm going to show you later Revelation 1.1 is built off of Daniel. Daniel 2.28 talks about the kingdom that will come about in the last days. Revelation 1.1 says, this, these are the things that must take place imminently. Why? Because we're in the last days. All right? Now, that's the book. Now, let me show you another bookend. Revelation 1.3. Here's the adverb engu, which means near or at hand. And notice it's also tied to Revelation 22.10. So the bookends of Revelation are about the idea that this Whatever's going to take place in the book of Revelation, this judgment and kingdom coming is soon. Now, here's what the partial preterists did with that. They say, aha, because this is going to happen soon, we know that it couldn't be 2,000 years later. It had to have happened by 70 AD. So the partial preterist reasons that this soon or near means it must happen by 70 AD. Now, What's the fatal flaw in that? Remember, the partial preterist believes that from Revelation 4 all the way to 11, that's fulfilled in 70 AD. And then from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 20, that's fulfilled during the church age. But what they believe is still future, that is this judgment to come and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, all the way to the end of the book. What's the problem with that? 
Well, notice, they insist this is still future. The end of the book is governed by near as well and soon. So the entirety of the book is governed by that, not just the beginning of it. They'll say, hey, look at Revelation 1.1 and Revelation 1.3. This judgment has to happen soon. It must happen by 70 A.D. But yet they believe in a future judgment that hasn't occurred yet for 2,000 years, and that's at the end of the book. Well, the end of the book is talking about the same thing. This is near and is soon. So what I'm going to show you is the way to understand these terms is this idea of nearness has to do with the idea of being at hand. Ever since Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens and was seated at the right hand of the Father, the next event on God's timetable is the sending of the king in the kingdom. And that's why when Jesus during his earthly ministry says, repent, the kingdom is at hand, he's talking about the kingdom being a threat. For when he returns, there's judgment upon those who don't believe. And so there is an at-handness to the kingdom. It is imminent. And so this rebuke then is, I think, devastating to the, the partial preterist view. Why? Because, yes, these things must happen soon, Revelation 1, 1, and 1, 3. But what happens at the end of the book has to happen soon. And so what it pushes the partial preterist into is they're really caught. They either have to go to full preterism, meaning the entirety of the book was fulfilled in 70 AD, and therefore it's soon, or they have to reject their view and go to futurism. Do you see the quandary they're in? Because soon has to be understood as imminent. Yeah, Bob. Eric, why don't you explain to us why full preterism is considered heretical? Yeah. Yeah, full, thanks, Bob. Full preterism, again, is the view that the entirety of the book from Revelation 1-1 all the way to the very end has been fulfilled in 70 AD. And so they believe that the coming of the kingdom came in the destruction of Jerusalem, and that there's no bodily resurrection to look forward to. There's no coming of the kingdom. Literally, you have nothing to look forward to. And it's really outside of the pale of orthodoxy. Those who hold to full preterism are, they're heretics. They don't believe yeah. in the literal coming of Christ. First Corinthians 15 deals with that issue. Exactly. And there's no resurrection. They're saying there's no resurrection. Exactly, yes. What Paul condemns, First Corinthians 15, Amen. And there are people out there doing that, yep. but it's not within anybody's version of orthodoxy. You know what's funny about that, Bob? You're exactly right. And what's interesting about that is when we compare full preterism to partial preterism, full preterism is actually more consistent. Now, it's wrong. It's heretical. It's from the pit of hell. But it's more consistent hermeneutically. Why? Well, because look at on Revelation 1.1, it talks about being near. Revelation 22.10, it's about being near. Okay, the partial preterist says, well, we take one part of the book as being near, but the other part of the book we say is, it's 2,000 years later. You yeah. see, do you see the point? So the point is the partial preterist is less consistent than the full preterist. And so the full preterist, yes, it's heresy. That's why we like to put them in a dilemma. The partial preterist won't want to accept full preterism. That's heresy. But they also don't want to accept futurism. And so I think that that's the dilemma that this structure of the book of Revelation puts them in. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any questions about that? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm saying this without having the data at my fingertips, but yeah. if you do a search on those Greek words in the Septuagint, you'll see that this soon is also used in the Old Testament yeah. for prophecy that's fulfilled in the, in the first advent, but it's right. hundreds of years later. Exactly. That's, that's right. Yep. And the reason for that is there's an at-handedness to it. It's always at hand, exactly. Yep. By the way, um, that, that's important to think about is the definition of imminence. When we talk about imminence, what are we really referring to? What we're referring to is, think about this, an overhanging event. Think of a huge chunk of snow that's ready to fall off your roof. It can happen at any moment, but it doesn't happen to happen. It doesn't have to happen within any certain time frame. It's always a constant threat. You don't know when it's going to fall. You know it will. But you don't know when. It's always at hand. That's the idea of the kingdom that we see. Now, let me show you why. And I'm going to turn your attention. I'll leave you off with this. We're going to get more into the Old Testament then next time. But let me leave you with this. Again, the Old Testament background is important to the book of Revelation, especially the book of Daniel. I mentioned earlier that 404 verses in Revelation 
That's the total number of verses. 278 of them contain allusions to the Old Testament, more than any other New Testament book. What's beautiful about that is it enables us to really learn the Old Testament, too, as we're studying it. Here's the order of the books. Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, Genesis. But there's also a lot of Exodus, Zechariah. But that's the order of the books as far as the number of allusions to them. Okay? Um, But let me show you now. Here's what we're going to do is in our introduction, we're going to get into the book of Daniel because the book of Revelation is built off of that. So I want you to do is turn your Bibles to Daniel 2.28. Daniel 2.28. And I'm just going to be reading, it's Daniel 2.28a, the first portion here. Notice Daniel writes, remember, now, remember the context here. Daniel is given the interpretation of this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. Nebuchadnezzar sees a kingdom of four parts come about. But at the end of that fourth kingdom, there's the messianic kingdom that comes and destroys all the other earthly kingdoms. Does everybody remember that? So Daniel's given that interpretation. And so here is Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar that he has the interpretation from God that all these other kingdoms are going to be destroyed by this messianic kingdom. That's what that vision was all about. Daniel 2.28a, he says this, Daniel, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So how do you know a mystery? Well, God reveals it to you. He's a prophet. God reveals mysteries through prophets. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Okay, it doesn't come to us by divination, by us making things up. It comes through prophets and apostles. So there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now let me stop there. Notice the phrase, what will take place in the latter days. It literally, in the Greek, if you're going to write it out literally from Greek to English, it's the things that must take place in the last days. Okay? That's what that phrase is. He's talking about this kingdom that must take place in the last days. Now turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 1.1. Revelation 1.1. We'll wait for everybody to get there. I want everybody to see it. Revelation 1.1 builds right off of that. Word for word the same in the Greek except one important difference. Remember, we're talking about the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament. Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must take place, what? Soon. All right, does everybody see that? It's word for word identical to Daniel 2.28. Word for word, the only difference is the change from, from latter days in Daniel 2.28 to the term soon in Revelation 1.1. Does everybody see that? That's the only difference. If you look at the Greek, and I'll show you this next time, it's word for word the same. Daniel 2.28, these are the things that must take place, talking about the kingdom of God in the last days. But what? You and I are in the last days, according to Hebrews 1.1 through 2. Remember, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. So what John is saying in Revelation 1.1 is that this kingdom that was alluded to in Daniel 2.28, is no longer in the last days. Why? Because you and I are in the last days. It's now soon. It's at hand. It's imminent. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's why you and I can be so confident that, yes, this was not fulfilled in 70 A.D. Brothers and sisters, what kingdom was there excited to be part of in 70 A.D.? Does it give us any great comfort? Yes, the, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed and the Jews were sacked. Woohoo! How does that help you? But the kingdom that's taught about in the book of Revelation, we are going to be given a resurrected body and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then go, not only are you going to have an earth to romp around on that's completely restored, but you're going to have the eternal states, a new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. That sounds pretty good. And that's what the book is about. And that's at hand. It could break forth tonight. That's the doctrine of imminence. Now, does it mean it has to happen this week or next month? No. It's always at hand. And that's why you and I are to always be those who forsake the sins that so easily entangle us and be convinced that the King of Kings could break forth through the clouds at any time. All right. Now, let's, uh, let's just close in prayer. And, uh, we, you know, today we want to pray for our little ones. They're going to be giving us the worship today. And I'm really excited to see that. I just thank God. And, 
You know, last week I was listening to Bob teach and I thought how, how blessed it is that we can all gather together as brothers and sisters and have some form of normalcy once again, uh, doing Sunday school and having our little ones uh, sing to us. And uh, I'm just very excited. So let's give thanks to God for that. Heavenly Father, we, we're so grateful to you for these wonderful promises that we see in the scriptures. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that today you would be with us and that everything we would do, whether it's our children singing praises to you or whether it's Bob teaching or us greeting one another, that everything we would do would be pleasing to you. I pray for our ears to be open to the word of God this morning in the sermon. I pray for a wonderful time of fellowship. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we study this book of Revelation, that this word would fall upon us and enable us to keep our eyes looking upward and say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Give us this wonderful hopes that we may persevere and bring glory to you in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.